Before there was Song Exploder, there was Kurt Loader. Before there was fake news, there was MTV News. That's how I found out what was happening in the world. Welcome to Wong Knows Podcast. I'm Corey Wong. Today's episode features one of the coolest rock stars I know. He's one of those people that just exudes rock star. Go look up endless videos from Woodstock 99, MTV Spring Break 96, all over MTV in the 90s. This guy was one of the soundtracks of my childhood and learning how to play guitar. Octaves. I'm telling you, Bush is an awesome band, and their singer, Gavin Rosdale, is with us today. Let's hit it. This season of the Wong Notes podcast is sponsored by Neural DSP. All Wong Notes listeners get 30% off with the voucher code WONG. Neural DSP creates industry-leading guitar and bass plugins. The range includes signature plugins from some of the best modern guitarists, such as Corey Wong, Pliny, Adam Nolly Getgood, and Tozin Abasi. The archetype Corey Wong gives you everything from crystal clear tones to edge of breakup blues tones, whereas the Fortin Amp series delivers all the crushing modern metal tones you could possibly need. And that Nameless is my favorite Marshall amp ever. There's a plug-in here for every type of player, and you can get a 14-day free trial for every single one of them without even entering your credit card details. Find me another company doing that. Once you've found the ones you like, you get that 30% off your purchase by entering the code WONG at checkout. I want to dive right in with the guitar thing because okay. I'm a Strat guy and all my favorite videos and things that I've seen you playing, you are playing a Stratocaster and you're getting this super awesome hard rock tone. But when I play the Strat, it's just like this super clean tone and I love <laughs> the versatility of the instrument. What drew you to the Strat when you started playing it? Um, I think I really like the Jazz Master. You know, I... I came up playing the jazz master uh, i really like because i the first guitar proper guitar i bought was a jazz master so i just fell in love with that and you know when you're you know in, in your band and you um starting out it was the first guitar i bought that cost real money you know it was like yeah. nice like a thousand dollars it was a vintage you know and, and so i played it all the time because it was the only guitar i had i got into that and then really i just suddenly was like always like getting like swamp like the big wave surfing of the of a les paul you know from the other side of the stage it's like you know that mid-tone that just like washes over everything it's really egotistically driven so me 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 you know and so i was like i don't know something like kind of goes with it a little bit um but can compete and you know that i got i gone back to jazz when i was just playing just now but uh I was thinking it felt a bit twangy. So that's why then I was like into the stress. I was like, I refused to, to go to the, the dark side. And I stayed with my, in my fender vein and um, I got into the strats and they just had a bit of smoother and they could take all the pe pedals that I love to put on them. That's the only difference between you, me and the, the tone I have. It's probably like, you know, I used to put it crazy through the, I used to bash it through uh, the dual rectifier, use an expand or a pedal, because the only pedal that, even though I had a crazy distortion, could make it even louder and even like weirder. Yeah. I remember Billy Gibbons came to see uh, Bush early on. And you know, the first guitar player, Nigel, is a phenomenal, incredible guitar player. 
But like all great guitar players, you know, it has some ego to him as opposed to bass players who are more, you know, suited to kind of laying the groove and just being a bit more chill. My guitar player was so excited, but all Billy Gibbons wanted to talk about is how the hell I got the tone I got because he'd never heard anything like that on stage. You know? I was always like laughing because I was like <laughs> DIY, terrible guitar player, but really liked my tone. And Billy Gibbons asked me how I got it. That was funny. That's got to feel pretty good. Yeah, it felt great. I mean, the thing is, is that... Uh, uh, we've modified a bit now because I sort of travel so much with uh, my uh, Axe Effects rig. So the idea is that you don't change too much within the venues day to day. But back in yeah. the day with amps, it was like, holy hell, what happened to my guitar? Or, wow, my guitar was amazing. It was like the building, well, no, there's no, there's no, uh, you know, no bass on the stage, you know. And then the bass player starts and you go, ding, 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 ding. You're like, oh, we're all fucked. Yeah. Okay, so you're using an Axe Effects now. Yeah, I mean, I still use diesel with through a metal boogie speaker in my studio, but but um, in fact now I've got a little studio in my house, and so I just use the the UA plugins where I've got like my diesel head and my, my boogie yeah. cab. It's kind of interesting. It's quite amazing what they do. It really is insane how far that's come these days. I have a question about. I grew up watching you play when I was a kid. I was not allowed to watch MTV when my parents were home. I was not. Some of, there were certain things that I wasn't allowed to watch. So, of course, that's all I'm going to do until my parents get home. Right. MTV was basically my babysitter in the 90s. Right. And I remember watching so many bands at that time playing through these screaming full stacks on stage. <laughs> and nowadays, like when I'm, even when we play like Red Rocks or Madison Square Garden, the sound engineer, the front of house engineer says like, hey, can you turn your amp down? Like I'm getting a little too much from the stage. I'm like, come on, man. Like Gavin was playing through a full stack. Like back then we're, we're sound engineers just kind of like, whatever. All right, fine. Or my, one of my favorite sound guys we ever had was this guy named Dave Natal, whose, whose favorite moment was when we were playing a festival in New Orleans and literally the speakers on the side of the, you know, it was like 40,000 people and the speakers and he blew them up and they caught fire. And that's what he thought was, a, <laughs> that was his major accomplishment. So I don't know. I mean, it's funny because, you know, in my band, Chris and Corey are really expert and they play not clinically as in clinically dead. I mean, clinically alive, but very, very tight and close and you know, I am tight with them. I have my own rhythm and all that. I'm, I'm a good time, but I'm definitely, I like being the kind of the spill and the color and the kind of, you know, if you imagine a ship that's at sea, it's like the goat goes, pushes in and out of the, it just makes that move and that human feel. And the sound guy that we have now, I just fell in love with. I went back to, I go through, you know, you play enough, you just go around, uh, you know, like you go through phases, what you, what you think's great. Right now, of course, pedals everything or my compressor is the only reason i'm alive or yeah and then uh and so re before i was like doing this thing of like doing some performance stuff where i just start to like you know just work the amp and just make it squeal and just do what i used to do more of and be kind of more messy and as soon as i did that my sound i was like oh my god you gotta do that i'm here people losing their minds because you've got all the you know the rigidity of the band being rigid and very there and then this like you know dive bomb stuff just flying across the the, 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 the landscape and so I think it's as funny as a guitar player how you go in and out like right now I'm just obsessed with detuned stuff not standard mm. tuning I can't you know my son is playing a lot of guitar he plays on the standard and I was like wow this is so weird it's like putting on your Sunday best you know ah come on it's this <laughs> it's too we just heard this I don't know so now I've got this 
crazy, you know, not even crazy, but just like trying to play everything either. I'm just playing a lot in um, drop C, open C on an acoustic, you know, so just just create all these different overtones that just sort of feel a bit more like you've, when you go to Hawaii, either you're going to go to the waterfalls in, you know, up on the other side of, of Maui, or you go to Wailea, the golf club side. I kind of like the waterfalls and the weirder and the sort of more intricate undergrowth. And then, of course, you get that really funny thing that I feel a bit guilty about that when you have a uh, open to your and stuff you then do the one finger massive guy wah, 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 oh, you know, yeah. this is like really you don't want anyone to see what you're playing but when you listen back on the speaker you're like damn that's kind of got a vibe you know it's strong it feels like cheating but yeah. it just sounds awesome i remember the first day that i discovered drop d tuning i thought that i had uncovered the missing corner of the map like in city slickers or something you did, it's, like- you did. <laughs> it's really fun i mean it's sort of barbaric, and I got away from drop D, personally, because I was like, well, okay, I'm, sounds a bit, I don't know, is that dated? Chris doesn't like those tunings. He's like, ah, oh, that sounds dated. Hmm. Of like trying to sneak around the building with a different tuning, the D tune is not D. Yeah. <laughs> and plus, you know, like, what's funny about making music is that I think it's beautiful to just be, like, completely somewhat out of touch with the zeitgeist, because then by the hmm. time you've made, if you make something interesting you give it a chance to come around again. You know, I mean, it's funny, you know, I've got a 14-year-old son who's playing really beautiful guitar. He's got really great guitar fingers and will be definitely a better guitar player than I am. But, so, but he's really into, like, indie stuff. Very bad band sound like he He'd like, a year ago, he was like hip-hop. You know, he just played hip-hop. I was like, guys, you know, no, I have nothing wrong against hip-hop. I, I'm all for a great track. But come on, it's like, oh, you got to sort of explore the world of music because it's wider than that. And then suddenly he's always in age. Last night he spent an hour playing with these obscure bands. That, what for me is a bit weird, makes me feel old because that one sounds like Pavement. That one sounds like Mercury Rev. That one sounds like uh, uh, Elliot Smith. And I know the pre- precursors. And then someone before me kind of hears those bands and goes, "Oh well, I hear television there. I hear so and so." You know, it's it's lovely the uh, the kind of you know the tradition of music. You know, it literally is taking a tradition of music and passing it down. And you know, he's now into that. He he's he doesn't want that perfect sound. He wants people to sound funky, and they don't really care if their instruments are in tune. Uh, I don't yeah. mind that so much. Sure, Chris in my band, that's like you might as well like punch him in the face. If things aren't yeah. in tune, he just can't take it. He walks in the room, it's like a cat. He's like, wow, my God, what's that? There's one chord in that, you know, he can't take it. I'm like a musical slut, so I like it when it's a bit pushed and a bit bit blues. And I don't like the blues, but I, I like when notes yeah, rub. Yeah. I like a little bit of a rub underneath a massive chorus. Just feels like, to me, it's orchestral and elegiac. It's massive. Sure. And then, but some of these indie artists that listened to last night, I was like, wow, they're out on the limb, they're on an edge. No one in the studio was like, that's a great part. Should we tune up for that? No, no. <laughs> You'll totally ruin the vibe if it's in tune. Yeah. Well, the vibe's gone. <laughs> okay. You said something interesting about not paying attention to the zeitgeist and just letting the thing come out. Mm-hmm. Is that something that's developed more recently for you? Or have you always... Well, I always did. I mean, you've got to think in the context of me um, starting Bush in London in um, 91, 92, whatever it was. When Britpop was the, you know, we were so proud of Blur, Oasis, Suede. This was the English was like, this was the thing. So basic truth is when I began Bush, I had let go of all commerciality. 
I was like, yeah. now I'm just going to play pubs in Camden with mm. cool people and I'm going to make no money, but let me just do something cool. Let me finish with it like cool. Because at this point, it's my third band. I didn't have any clue how anyone even got a fucking record deal, let alone how they uh, were successful. I was at a point sure. as a musician where it was like, just could you get signed? Was that it? Was not even could you write a great song? Could you get signed? Could somebody just believe mm. in us? You know, and I got signed to a publishing deal six months after I began uh, writing songs for nothing. But I just got super ripped off, and like it took me years. I had to pay a fortune to get out of it actually. But wow. so, so they that was Warner Chapel. They um, yeah. So there was some potential there, but then in terms of getting signed, so so no. So when I did Bush, I remember distinctly lying in my bath, listening to what I'd done, these demos with Nigel, and I was like, wow, this is really cool, and like, this has nothing to do with what's going on here, and we, this is a one-way ticket to nowhere, but it's a good nowhere, it's cool, because we'll just play, there's a certain pub circuit you could play, professional musicians, you can make enough money, a few hundred bucks a night you could make, and I was like, well, I'll just do that, and like, continue with my day job, like, look at Fugazi, like how cool they are, they've got day jobs. And they just fucking play yeah. this amazing band. They don't have a Lambo. They're just amazing. People love them, you know, try that. And so that's when I barked on Bush. It was only meeting this one dude that came over to sign us, that it was like this whole world opened up to me that we get to meet each other 25 years later. Before then, there was yeah. no, literally zero hope, chance, possibility. It was like a zero. I was like, Running on empty, painting houses, making music I loved, you know. So did you feel when you started Bush, and I'm curious to hear you expand on it a little bit more. You said, like, this is my last chance. Did you feel like you had already done a few bands, we're going to try it? Well, I did one band that got signed, signed to Epic, my first band. And then it was like, they're trying to sort of tailor us. I don't know what, I mean, really, but looking back on it, they just uh, had us help someone write a song with us. But we wrote songs and we tried to record them. We were like a, a rock, a pop rock band. It's just sort of like nothing, just not really any. As the next band I was in, I found this guitar player who didn't let me play guitar because he's a really very good rock guitar player. And I was just pretty horrible. Uh, you know, just played a bad ovation guitar, you know, just sort of like strummed a few chords to, to try and, you know, play Bowie songs or Dylan songs and Neil Young and just sing along with them and just get my shit together on a guitar. And then I began, then I bought, you know, saved up to get an electric guitar, but I didn't have one for a while. And uh, so he played guitar and then I worked out, it's more traditional trad rock, a bit more bluesy, but he was an amazing guitar player. He's an amazing guitar player. So that was, I was like, wow. Yeah. It was in by being in a band with him that I it almost in a weird way figured out what band I didn't want to be in. I was like, mm. I want to do the blues without doing, you know, playing the blues. Yeah. I just thought it was just didn't, I didn't like it. You know, I thought that Hendrix nailed it. You know, Zeppelin hit it. And this guy was super into Hendrix and super into the um, Zeppelin. And was really, he's a really great guitar player. He has some great, we did some good songs, but it wasn't, I, didn't, I just felt it was too trash. It was too Sunset Strip for me. And I wanted to be more like, in the Pixies, you know? So mm. he broke up with me. So then when my, then my third band, I was like, well, fuck it. I'm probably not going to make any headway anywhere in my life, but at least be in a band where you make a record where you just go, I made a record, you know what I mean? I, I have this other life, whoever I am, but I, um, I made a record and this is my aesthetic, you know? And it was just weird and by, by, you know, we're really lucky that we just got 
basically um, someone recommended us. We'd done a video, you know, so whatever, a few things happened, and uh, I got a record deal in America. That's how it happened. And was that 16 Stone, that first album you guys made? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And to imagine, I mean, that had so many of those songs are the hit songs of my childhood. And that was just like the radio music that I was listening to growing up. That's incredible. Yeah, it's incredible. But so I still love, you know, and I, I, I obviously we've just brought out a record. Uh, would make sense to consider new material now since we're all kind of in this sort of hiatus sort of lockdown, yeah. slowdown, just every day trying to get better and, and, and enjoying it and just, I don't know, just on that holy grail of, of trying to write great songs. You know, there's so many great musicians, so many great songwriters out there, so many great styles that yeah. it's just, it's a really, uh, such an intriguing lifestyle you know, thing to do. Yeah. Well, I listened to some of the new album, The Kingdom, and I saw some of your live stream that you guys did, which was really cool. Right. And you mentioned the zeitgeist. You're still at it. You're still doing the thing. And not everybody can say that. You've stood the test of time. You've stayed in the zeitgeist. Right. You've kept making great songs, albums, all of that stuff. You've continually done the thing. Thank you. Yeah. What do you attribute that to why you're doing that and not the other bands that you were around at that time when you were first starting? Why, why aren't they doing it? Why are you? Well... <laughs> Obviously, it's impossible for me to uh, comment on anybody else's actions. That would make me a pig. <laughs> judgmental, sure. judgmental pig. Well, you not. did already call a couple other guitar players egotisticals, but uh... <laughs> well, I'm saying, but it's, I'm, I'm saying that as a whole. I think that if you play lead yeah. guitar, I just mean as types. When you look at a band, I know, I you know, know, you know what I mean. You have to be. I mean, <laughs> I, I've had two wonderful guitar players that have been around a lot amazing guys but they you know to be a lead guitarist that's the your, it's your personality trait you have to be like you know hi you know you're, you're the most yeah. dominant you that's your character and if you're the bass player you're usually a bit more kind of easier going if you're the drummer you're usually sort of funny and like methodical you know now is this is this commentary coming from gavin the rhythm guitar player or gavin the rock star lead singer Oh, you see, like if you're, you know, obviously if you're lead singer, you're going to be a total douchebag, you know. Really, you know, absolutely, the most egotistical would be the singer, of course. So I, I die by my own sword, as usual. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. And sometimes I've played lead guitar. Who, you know, sometimes, yeah. I, sometimes I don't like to brag, but every now and again, you know, I'm cranking out a few, uh, few lead lines myself, and I love it. But it's the yeah. it's the outgoing side of me, you know. I know I'm I know I'm taking sure. over a moment if I'm doing it, you know. <laughs> so I'm yeah. I'm guilty of all of the above. And I love playing bass. It's sometimes I just don't want to talk to him for three days, so I feel like a bass player, you know. Well, it sounds like you're pretty self-aware. So now with studios, we're all those people. <laughs> with home studios, yeah. we are all those people. That's true. That's it. But yeah, so anyway, I digress. Well, how about as far as I've seen so yeah, excuse me. That that question, um, I love it so much. I love it. You love so it. That's is that it? It's just I just love it. Like I love it. Like my kids been here for a week. They leave today, and I'm like definitely the worst engineer in the world. It's just it's horrific. But I've been enjoying to record myself little bits and um, you know come up with stuff. And and um, I think that that passion is at the root of everything that anyone does. And um, I think that as we get older, ironically, especially in the world of expression, you know, being, you know, express yourself, whether it's guitar playing, whether it's 
cooking, whether it's writing, poetry. As we mature, we're going to get better. You know, the insights, the kind of shortcuts of things, um, the editing of things, you know, it's, it's, um, it's really exciting to be at the driving wheel of your creativity. You know, it's really fun. And like, I've really neglected to study enough guitar um, over the years. And so I've been enjoying trying to play catch up with my sorry self, you know, <laughs> I just expand and just enjoy it because it's, it's wild how infinite music is, you know, 12 notes and, and an infinite and infinite possibilities. It's quite extraordinary, really. Yeah. Blows me away. There are two of my favorite moments as a kid. I remember watching one of those being spring break, 1996 MTV, you guys playing in what was going to be a hurricane or what was supposed to be a hurricane. And you're out there playing glycerin in the rain. To me, the most rock star moment I've ever seen in my entire life. This incredible display of music and just, I'm out here doing this thing and I might get electrocuted, but I've, I got to sing this song the way that I got to sing it. Can you talk me through that moment a little bit? Because I'm sure other people have talked to you about it. And I remember on MTV seeing like Kurt Loder sing, Gavin Rosdale from Bush plays during hurricane, almost dies from electrocution. And, you know, they played it up. But I remember watching it live thinking, oh, my gosh, this is the most incredible thing ever. Wow, it's amazing. Thank you so much. Um, I, I distinctly remember that because, you know, we'd been, I think we'd been playing. We were going to stop. Um, they were warning us to not go on. I used to wear um, creepers all the time, sort of the big rubber sole crepes. So I think I was either safe from it or I was definitely going to die. But I was thinking to myself, <laughs> I'd had this like kind of relatively, well, totally anonymous, sorry, non-achieving pedestrian life. A lot of fun in there, but you know what I mean? Like in terms of a legacy, what I d had I done at that point? What was my gift to the world? Nothing, you know. 17 jokes and a few goals at soccer, you know? So I was like, well, if I die now, you know, at least I'm something's happened. You know, I made this record and then I might die. And, you know, so I just weighed it up of like, what, how much do you do this? You know, what is, what part of this, of this life is, is it, is you, you know, cause like in order to live this life, you have to like, it's a thousand percent or nothing. You know, you can't, mm -hmm. you can't have trap doors. You can't have a, uh, safety nets, you can't have a way out, you can't have a trust fund, you know, you just got to be like, and so I thought at that moment, fuck it, this is it. So when I did it, I remember playing, I was really confused that it was so wet that I thought there can't be actual music coming from this because it felt like a plank of wood. But I, was, I still bothered to make the core changes because I was like, well, you might as well try, but to me, in my <laughs> ear, it was like nothing. It was just pouring. It's like someone was standing above me with a jug of water just pouring on the fretboard. And I remember just more worried about what's going on with the guitar. So I literally had like playing in a swimming pool. Anyway, so I just did it and that was it. And like, so it, it, there was no more thought outside of that. And when I was in it, I just, just was thinking, this must sound terrible. <laughs> That's my brain was like, I couldn't, I was like, how can I pitch to this? Because it was like, it felt flappy. It felt like I was playing like in drop, in um, drop A, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. There is something interesting about that song and something that you do in, in several of your albums since then also is that it's a ballad, but you play it with a, 
kind of heavy guitar tone, a distorted guitar tone. And a lot of people, their instinct would be the complete opposite. Normally be like, okay, we got a ballad. Let's get the acoustic guitars out or let's get the nice, big, clean electric guitar sound. But you decided to do a heavier sounding electric guitar and on the album, adding a string section. I thought that was such a ballsy and cool move. And it was so unique I'm wondering what what the decision making was in that. If you're just like, I gotta play even live when I've seen you play it live, dirty tone. I was doing live with that. Um, you know, it's beautiful. Sometimes the limitations of life give you things. I mean, for me, it's just how I played it, and I never considered. It's so strange because that's just how I did it. I think that I was at home when I wrote it, and um, I suppose the guitar was that was the one guitar I had with the one sound I liked because I was, didn't have a pedal board. I just sort of had a, probably a Dan Electro pedal and a, um, a sort of a practice amp, you know? Just a little yeah. distortion Dan Electro. That's how I get a really nice tone out of that. And I love having that. I do guitar lessons in it, you know, of like, where I've like really kind of cranked sound, but at a manageable level. Just because it's more fun, you know? Then it's also nice to play with a fun, clean tone. I was doing stuff this morning with a fun, clean tone. But... I like it like that, you know, and um, there's benefits of being sort of feral at times. And that was one of my feral qualities, you know, it was just like, I didn't know what the right way to do that was, you know, I just did it the way that I heard it. That's amazing. That's so cool. But it's sort of in a funny way, the opposite of amazing. It was like, you know, instinctive or sort of like, you know, like Man Ray, you know, his most famous images are the accidents that happened. You do something, make an experiment or you try a new process and you know suddenly you have this like negative image and you're like actually the negative is better than the original image or like with mm-hmm. me seeing i played it it sounded like all right you know dodgy but wow and i put that down electron on it, it sounds super cool and it's not volume that's like i'm not like bleeding you can't hear me but it's just like a fat bed it's like hey you want to sit on this really fat sofa with like fat cushions and a really beautiful cashmere rug that's keep you warm by this fireside or you want to sit on a wooden chair it's like that wow that's cool is your approach to writing to creating music to making albums to playing live is it any different now than it was then because of your experience obviously having my own studio i've gone through the phase of, of having my own studio on this long uh, black white um, black white rainbows excuse me and on um the kingdom and so in that situation um when i go write songs i sit with an engineer and i get him to do all the work of you know uh, can i have a drum yeah. track please thank you get the drum track i play the <laughs> drums or i choose a loop and I say, uh, let's get the guitars going. Okay, you want to mix the JCM uh, with the, the, you know, with diesel, put a mixture through that, and let's play that. And I thought, actually, fuck it, doesn't sound good. Just, let's play the bass, the P bass, but like through a really distorted uh, Ampeg SVT. Boom. And that's it. And that's how it works. I had everything ready. And then he, poor guy, would sit there. So, you know, it might take me, might play for an hour, choose a bit. You know what I mean? Like anyone, you know, build a track myself, like a producer, build a track, sing on it, boom, boom, boom. Now I'm doing that myself. Um, but I'm a horrible engineer, so it's like more in sections of things, and I'm still working on that. Or then I might get, you know, I wrote some songs with Tyler Bates, so he might send me, send me a couple of riffs. I like the riff, but then I like... I take that one bit, I like two parts he sent me like that. So then I'll do that. Then I'd be like, well, then I'll put these other bits of music. If I do that, I like this riff, but this is where I go for that part. 
so I do that. And I went to his studio and said, this what I do with that. And he says, okay, so do that, so that's that. Or I might have finished a song or have a song going, and I was like, I was like how do I, what's this verse? What do I really want? I've got all the other elements. I called Chris up, I said, Chris, um, I've got this space on a song. I would just come and play, give me a riff. I'm like losing my mind on this. I've had enough, I'm bored of this. So it's really fun to be collaborative. You know, don't, I don't want to be a, I'm not a cobbler, shoemaker, or a baker that I have to sit in my studio alone. 3 a.m. to the next day, feel so sort of uptight, you know? So it'd be better, mm. I can do that anyway. So I have to write so many songs, you know, what's he got? It's a fantastic guitar player. Stupid to not use his fantastic guitar player playing ability you know if Tyler's amazing yeah. Tyler's wants to like I say you don't give me anything unless it's like you know darkest riff of the world if it's not a dark riff of the world <laughs> don't bother you know I'm not interested you know I, I want something wild so I get you know they both do stuff that I don't do you know they're both amazing guitar players far better guitar player than I am those two so let's see what they got just yeah. just music alright this is some good conversation I gotta remind you though have you guys not gone to that Neural DSP website yet? You got to go check it out. Use that 30% off coupon, Wong. That's my last name. And while you're there, check out the Archetype Corey Wong plugin. I guarantee you, if you are looking for good, clean, or edge of breakup tones, this is the plugin for you. There's three different amps, a pedal board, EQ, three different cabs. Come on! You can use it live. You can use it in the studio. There's that 14-day free trial. Check out all the plugins and let me know which one's your favorite. Do you seek after a certain energy overall for Bush? Is there a certain energy that drives the sound of the band? Yeah, I mean, I've got everyone a bit like amped up. I think when I got divorced that I did a Black White Rainbows, it was sort of like a maudlin record, minor key, and everything's a bit sort of like bruised and broken and exploratory and trying this new world. And then like, after I fucking had enough of that, I was like, what the fuck is that about? Uh, I wrote The Kingdom, this sort of call to arms for all of us to, to rise up at this time, you know. Because when I said that thing about the zeitgeist, that sort of meant musically, because it's obviously essential that when you write, you are exactly writing about the zeitgeist and you catch it, you know. Sure. It's no good me writing about the Sequoia Forest when there's a climate change going on or, you know, you just got to like be mind, you know what I mean? We've, we literally have like wars, famine, uh, the, uh, mental health crisis, uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, racism, the country's on fire. It's like, oh my God, it's like, you know what I mean? This is not the time to do the concept album about butterflies. You know, it's just, sure. you're not gonna, I never would, by the way, but when I was, you know what I mean? It's like so much going on that I keep having to pull it back into like personal experience and personal situations. But, you know, it's really hard for me to write right now without being mindful of mental health. More people die from suicide than wars um, and um, sort of obesity and, and wars all these things and terrorist attacks combined. I was reading it in this Noah Harari's new book uh, about that. So it's like, this is epic crisis for mental health, especially, you know, young, uh, young men um, of sort of 20 to, to 40. That's a really, really hard uh, space for people to be in. So it's amazing yeah. to have a job where I can like, Talk about that. And I'm not navel-gazing. I'm not saying, oh, God, I'm sure. all lost. It's like all these really serious things, you know, that, that our culture, you know, everybody talks about all these different essential movements that are happening. Well, 
one movement along the, all, everything else that is very valid is uh, mental health and mental health of young men, you know, because the, the mental health of young men really infiltrates the rest of the world. Imagine if young guys aren't in a clear, good state, positive state to benefit the rest of us, they're bad for the rest of us. <laughs> they're dangerous for the rest of us, you know? Yeah. Um, and you're a young guy, so you're in that category. So, yeah. you know, it's, a, it's, it's amazing fertile ground. And so that's also feeds into that thing like you said about like why, you know, how come we can continue to do that? How can you not want to talk about those things and how are you not energized as an artist at any point in your career? You know, I've accepted, like I don't expect to be, even though we just have a lot of, you know, 20 million streams on the last uh, the first two songs off of the kingdom you know i don't expect to be the billboard awards you know i sort of given up all that sort of pomp and ceremony and fun stuff and like i don't know if i'm just a working musician now but i have a, a beautiful fan base and i think it's growing by us going to this area of people like getting the kingdom be like who the Who's this rock band? You know, a whole wave of people, younger people yeah. hearing it go, well, what's this? What is this all about? You probably don't even don't even know 16 Stone, Razorblade, Suitcase, you know, uh, Science of Things, all those records and stuff like that. And uh, there's lots to, to uncover. So I, I think it's exciting. And it's also exciting to keep reinventing yourself and destroying or trying to uh, beat up your catalog and you have a really healthy catalog that's like, well, good luck trying to be on our set list and you've got a new record that's like fighting again. Yeah. Every song, we, you know, it's no good if I write a song that can't compete on a set list with the, the classics that we play. This is like no function, you know, it might as well not. So I have to just, so that's why I think I'm in this sort of, you know, I was listening to Damon Albarn's Gorillas, the new track with Elton John, and it's really brilliant. And I was thinking, man, I've got like, why am I in this like, but I'm, I'm like, like, I kid wanting to like, you know, just like make 50,000 people go, you know, mosh and go crazy. And, you know, that energy of playing a club in St. Petersburg in Russia and having like sweat off the ceiling as people losing their minds because you're like, you just got this energy and this vitality. And, you know, I, I just, I just love that. I can't help it. I love laid back mellow music but i when i made and i made a record with a bit more like that i got in loads of trouble everyone's annoyed at me the band don't want to play it and like that's all here it's like so i just might as well just like go for it and like just get in that ring and just fight yeah do you consider yourself more of a live guy or more of a studio kid? like what where do you feel most at home well i think that now I, I mean i love the studio because you make things forever it's the most beautiful life to have that balance. Now I'm obsessed about the studio and the sound of record and, you know, you being able to go on a trip and driving, uh, you know, Jason from uh, Fever 333 had written me and said he listened to the kingdom on a, on a drive and he'd be blasting the record, you know? That's incredible for me. Like I wanted to hear that you did that, you know, taking your, you know, the person closest to you on a crazy adventure where you're going to sort of, um, you know, go camping and eat mushrooms or something, you know, all, all legal, you know. And um, so, no, therefore, the recordings are massive because you, a lot more people can hear the records. I mean, there's 20 million streams on the kingdom. Now, there yeah. could be some people doing repeat plays, of course. You know, my mum maybe has a few of those plays to her credit. <laughs> but uh, probably with the volume down, you know, it's not really her style but just for the sport. But no, seriously, you know, like you could never compete. I can't play to 20 million people or 10 million people. Yeah, so of course. The, 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 the 
lion's share of people getting to know me and the band is listening to it on uh, on in their ears. So no, I'm obsessed about the recording. Oh my god, we're obsessed with it. But yeah. then comes showtime, and we're obsessed with that. Tom Waits, the way you do anything is the way you do everything. So each individual activity in your life should be like to really be as uh, realized as possible. Else, what's the point? Is there a favorite live experience that you've had? Oh my god, the next one. Can you imagine? It's going to feel like. <laughs> yeah, you're right. That's a great answer. Whether you're a fan buying a ticket, whether you're a journalist coming to, to judge the show, um, or if you're a musician <laughs> or a singer, you know, um, can you imagine how we're all going to feel? We have a show, we have something coming up um, at the end of November, I think. Yeah, something like, I can't remember when, I think in, in November, some drive-in stuff. So, I mean, it'd be amazing to do it and weird and, you know, so that's going to feel fantastic. But I think that when we're all safe and, in that huddle before we go on stage and just getting back to what we love. It's it's just been a devastating blow to us all. And I haven't really spoken about it because too many people have died and too many yeah. people have suffered to navel gaze about, you know, wanting to play and do shows. It felt like really just hadn't thought about it, you know? But yeah. in the, within the context that we've all learned to live with this for now, contend with it, we're allowed to be honest and say, man, just love those shows so much. Just miss those shows so much. You know, really, really yeah. do. And uh, there's a beautiful thing about staying home and it's being good to, as um, as a father. It's really good. But uh, yeah. I, I do miss. Um, I do miss. I do miss the travel and the stress of the making flights, making the flight, and drinking cold red wine that feel like you could run your car on if you needed to. Push came to shove. You could <laughs> run your car and that stuff. But you'll take it. You'll take it. Take if I will take two more of those. That's fantastic. You know, write something on there. You know, get some terrible food. Get a sandwich where the bread's the size of your hand, and then the filling is the size of you know, it's like a, you know, like the bread is like, like a doorstep. You go, what the fuck is this? You know, all that stuff. You know, don't like my room. Like my room. Go for a walk. Don't go for a walk. Get a coffee. Not get a coffee. You know, all the bullshit going on tour. Yeah, it's funny how we miss those things now. I would almost do anything to have all that. Yeah, I, I think it, it will come because it's just only the vaccine is any answer, really, right? I guess. Well, the drive-in shows, you mentioned that. It's interesting to see those things starting to pop up. And I think people are experimenting both on the industry side and on the fan side of, are these going to work? Are they not going to work? There's a lot to consider. Hopefully it'll be great. Hopefully it won't be a disaster. There is one historic event that has been known as a disaster, known as Woodstock 99. And because of a few reasons, you know, just things getting out of hand. For me, I, like I said, I was a kid watching that sort of stuff. I watched your set live on, the, on pay-per-view. And I remember watching a lot of those all my favorite bands playing Woodstock and wishing that I was there and seeing it's like, oh, it looks like it's mayhem. But now when I look back, I realize, oh, there was a lot of stuff going down there that I just wasn't aware of as a, as a kid watching that. But I do remember profoundly thinking in, the, in that moment, watching that whole festival, thinking this is what I'm going to do with my life. This looks incredible. 
Can you speak to your experience there? And did it feel like, I mean, I know there was one day where it kind of all went down. I don't know what day you were playing or what, I don't remember those specifics. We played the day we played with Limp Bizkit. I just remember we'd been in the studio, we were working on the science of things. And um, as you kind of get a bit, you tend to do that where your your head goes real down because you're just focusing on work and the album. And and in the meantime, Limp Bizkit's were, Bizkit's, Limp Bizkit was uh, (laughs) a... was really, really starting to take over. And, you know, it was really fun to walk out on that stage. And I have this perverse thing I love to do, which is I love to not see the stage and I love to not have a sneak preview. I like to be backstage, not have seen it, so that when I go out, my first view of the whole uh, venue is is with the audience. You know what I mean? It's not like, I mean, sometimes, you, you know, if you do a sound check or we do, if we do a new song or playing a cover, we'll go in a sound check. So you go in, it's something romantic about empty venues for a minute, but really I like them when they're full. And so with Woodstock, I specifically didn't want to see the stage. I remember going out and it just took your breath away because the way it was sort of felt a bit uphill, like it was all led down to us. Mm. And it just as, as far as the eye could see, because I don't think it's a quarter of a million people, uh, as far as you can see, there's people. I just remember the whole thing was uh, taking taking my breath away. And then just like, just playing and wanted to just, I I really felt the importance of it because I'd seen the Woodstock movie. So I just, I don't know, just, just felt really invigorating to be part of everything and to be part, you know, and to be part of something that was happening. And then I know that it all went bad the next day, but uh, we, our experience was amazing. And, you know, watching Limp Biscuits, Limp Biscuit was really fun. To keep calling it Limp Biscuits. Limp Biscuit was really fun. You know, I love that band. Uh, I like Wes and, you know, and Fred, you know, I just like that band. I know people had, were mixed about whatever sure. they they still are a fucking amazing band to watch um, at a, in a festival type setting. They're fantastic, fucking brilliant. Wes is amazing. I love him. What a showman, what a guitar player. Love him. I remember being terrified of him watching him play, but also so intrigued in his sound. I read one guitar magazine interview where he said, Yeah, I just went to the guitar center. I said, Give me the worst sounding pedals you've got. And whoever the guy thought were the worst sounding pedals, he knew that those were the ones that he wanted. And that's how he made his noises or something. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, that is cool. <laughs> yes. He's, uh, I like him. We nearly did a band together. I mean, I, I, we spoke about it for a minute before um, back in the day when he was doing Black Light Worms. Mm. And um, he ended up singing for them. It was a shame. I mean, like, I just always loved his, his, his aesthetic and who he is so it would have been fun to make music with him but so did you great. stick around that festival for a few days or well you said you watched Limp Bizkit yeah, we're always in and out you know because whenever you're out working you don't actually get the benefit you get the benefit of the festival in the day the, whatever day you're playing yeah maybe the day before you know if you go in somewhere I've done that before but never the day after it's just you know there's, there's always another festival somewhere that we need to get to yeah. How has the festival scenes changed since then in your eyes? It was funny because, you know, growing up going to the European festival was much more relaxed and sort of not as, as pristine as the clean American ones. The American ones sort of invented a kind of American and Japanese. It's like all like backstage and all clean. And oh, the ones that in festivals in Europe are sort of like hairy dudes with tattoos and like everyone looks super heavy and oh, big open um, catering and 
draft beer on tap and just, I mean, you get all that, just sort of a bit wilder and a bit more, uh, a bit more dangerous. And, um, and then they got a bit sanitized. But um, I was going to go back and do this last summer of, of COVID. I was going to do, we were going to do all the festivals again in Europe. So I was really looking forward to that. Um, my health is good. My kid's health is good. So I'm very grateful. But there was a lot of fun things planned during the summer. You know? so, uh, it's so weird, isn't it now? Because it's sort of the end of the year. But it's just it's hard mentally to allow it to be, you know, because you're like, well, hang on. You know, I live in California, so it's 90 degrees. So could be men outside. Yeah. I'm like, but we're not done with nothing. We're, we're all like running to stand still here. Yeah. Do you feel like you're more a part of American culture now or do you still feel like you're part of the UK culture? 100% part of American culture. Yeah. I mean, I live here. I'm here all the time. And when I go home, I went, luckily I went back in March. I keep a house there. And pre-COVID, I was going there two, three times a year, you know, to keep an eye on things. But, you know, when you... Like I, my main job in my life, as I see it, is like being a great father. So my dependable children. I have one daughter in London, but she's older. But but um, yeah, those boys are here. You know, like that's it. Yeah. So wherever they are, that's my just my jam. And I, I everything else I do around them, but and I love I love my music more than anything. But I mean, I I got to be responsible for them. You know, it's, can't just can't just breed and, and split. You know? Yes. I like that. In my, in my humble opinion, yeah. No, that's really great to hear. I don't think a lot of people consider that part of somebody who's a rock star to say, look, my number one job is being a father for my kids because I want to be there for them. I think that's incredible. Yeah, thank you. I mean, you know, I tour five months of the year and I would tour more if I didn't have kids. I would, I would probably, you know, there's no need to really stop. You know, some people do that the way that Dylan tours, you know, and they just do these endless tours. It's been kind of amazing. Yeah. Everyone else in my band is married with kids or in long-term sure. complete partnerships, whatever I should say. And uh, so I don't know if they could tour the whole time. You wouldn't want to tour the whole time. It, it's enough. You know, I think you can overplay as well. Yeah. But I haven't played Russia. I want to get to Russia. Ooh, I've never played there either. Let's do a I am 100% in. Well, my last question to you, since you brought up Limp Biscuit yeah. and American versus UK culture, when you think of Limp Biscuit, do you think of a cookie or do you think of a bakery item that you get at KFC? Well, I think of Limp Biscuit. I, I mean, I think of the band. I can't think of anything else. But a biscuit in the UK is different than a biscuit in America. Right. So that might actually define whether you're more of American culture. Well, a biscuit to me is a cookie yeah you don't think of a cookie when you think of limp biscuit though do you no okay good <laughs> all right that's no. it gavin thanks so much for hanging with us man i if anybody has not checked out their new album check it out i love what you guys are doing it's so awesome to see that you're still doing your thing hearing your voice on albums it's it's really cool man thanks man i appreciate it all right well thanks i will see you on the road in russia at some point let's do it all right see you man bye Peace. There you have it. You gotta love what you do to stay in the game. That is my secret. At least, it's not a secret. It's just what I always say. If I think I'm gonna have fun doing something, I'll do it. If I think I'm not gonna have fun, I don't do it. Music's fun, I'm gonna keep doing it, and that's what's gonna keep me in the long game. Anyways, thanks for joining us. This is Wong Notes. Next week, we got Jacob Collier. We'll see you then. Peace!